Have a seat and turn in your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 18. We're going to dive in pretty quickly today, but my name is Steve Marshman. Welcome to everybody here. Welcome to new people. I've met some just now. Um, welcome to you online and a special welcome to my beautiful bride, Vicki. I can picture you right now sitting in our living room, having a cup of coffee and being just like, oh, come on, I hope he does well. <laughs> but, uh, you know, Vicki actually helps with these messages quite a bit. So her fingerprints are all over this. And again, my name is Steve Marshman, and we're in a series on faith, particularly called Resilient Faith. And what we've been doing through the summer is looking at all these different uh, people in the Bible. And today's Hezekiah, Hezekiah, King Hezekiah. And uh, that's why we're going to 2 Kings 18, because that's where his story starts. And as, as we begin today, I want to just tell you, I have personally two goals. I have two goals today. One is I want to encourage you, but I also want to challenge you. I want to encourage your faith today, but I also want to challenge your faith. And you guys are giving me the exact same look that the 9 o'clock did. We're okay with the first one. <laughs> Let's get the encouragement. Well, I'm not sure I'm ready to be challenged. It's already been a, a challenging week and year, hasn't it? But today I want to challenge your faith. So I hope you enjoy coming along with me, going through the scriptures, listening to the story of King Hezekiah. So without further ado, let's read the first two verses of 2 Kings chapter 18, verses 1 and 2. In the third year of Hosea, Son of Eli, king of Israel, Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. His mother's name was Abijah, daughter of Zechariah. And some of you are already thinking, oh no, the Old Testament. And that was six names in two verses. And uh, I don't even know if I pronounced them right, but... I'm going to help you out with the background for just a few minutes. This is going to be a lightning, lightning fast review of where King Hezekiah fits in the entire story of the Bible. Because we know each week when we do this faith series, we're jumping into the middle of the Bible. So I want to help you out with what's going on. And if you remember, a couple of weeks ago, our friend Ian was here and he preached out of the life of King Saul. King Saul was the first king of Israel. And then the second king of Israel was King David, and he's probably the most famous king. And then his son Solomon was the third king of Israel, and he's famous because he got the temple built. And by the way, this all happened in round numbers. I like to keep my history easy, so I round everything, right? All that was happened around the year 1000 B.C., but then the history gets complicated. I'm, I'm going to have a slide come up for you that shows what happens. Because the kingdom splits into two. It splits into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And here's what's confusing, to me anyway. Before the split, the whole kingdom was called Israel. And then after the split, the northern kingdom was called Israel, like, couldn't you find another name? But that's what, it, so you have to read in context of where you're at. The northern kingdom retains the name Israel, and the southern kingdom is called Judah. And the northern kingdom went through 20 kings 
and they were all bad. Every one of them wasn't a very good king until the Assyrians conquered them in, in around numbers, about 700 BC, the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom, and it was no more. It, it was never restored. The southern kingdom also had 20 kings, coincidentally. There's nothing particularly important about that. What is important is some of the southern kingdoms were good. The kings were good, like Hezekiah, and some were bad. Now, the good kings weren't all good. They were still sinners and had their moments, and Hezekiah did today, uh, as well. But today we're going to talk about the good things of King Hezekiah. And the kingdom of Judah was also conquered, conquered by Babylon. And they were, the, the, uh, the whole kingdom was exiled to, the, uh, to, to Babylon. And what happened after that is an amazing miracle of God because they were restored and re- were returned to Jerusalem. And, and why is that? Because God promised David, back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God promised David that you'll have a king forever. And he was talking about the Messiah, Jesus. So that's why the southern kingdom was restored. So that, that's the setting of all the kings. Now what you need to know, just to help you out a little bit, is these 20 kings of the north and south, they weren't lined up. Hezekiah was the 13th of the 20 kings, and he reigned when the last of the 20 kings of the northern kingdom was king. That's King Hosea, and that's when the northern kingdom was conquered. So picture this. King Hezekiah was reigning in the southern kingdom of Judah when the northern kingdom was captured and conquered and taken over. Imagine today if you were the, quote, king of the United States, unquote, and somebody came and conquered Canada and took it away. It would change how you operate, wouldn't it? I mean, so that's what, that's what King Hezekiah is living in. So with that as a background, and I know that was really, really fast, and uh, we're kind of done with all that academic background stuff, we're going to jump into King Hezekiah's life and what he did. So let's look at verses 3 and 4. 2 Kings verses 3 and 4. It says, he, Hezekiah, did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. Verse 4, he removed the high places smashed the sacred stones, and cut down the Asherah poles. He broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made, for up to that time the Israelites had been burning incense to it. Parentheses, it was called Nehushtan, or some of your audio Bibles say Nehushtan. It doesn't matter, no one really knows. And, and some Bibles have a footnote that says Nehushtan in Hebrew sounds like bronze and snake. So this bronze snake on a pole that Moses made had been given a name. Now, I don't want to skip over a very, very, very important point today. And by the way, I only have, if you're a note taker, I only have two big points today, and I'll I'll tell you when they're coming. But look at what happens in verse 4. It says, he, Hezekiah, did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Hezekiah did what was right. And I think most of you are like me because everybody I've ever talked to has had this experience Sometimes I think about a good thing to do for something or in some way a good thing to do, and then I go do it. And other times, unfortunately, I'll have this good thought that pops into my head, and I won't go do it because something or someone gets in the way. Some, something stopped my good thought, my good actions 
from being realized. It could be a really, really simple thing. You might be sitting here today and see somebody go, you know, I haven't sent hi to that person. I haven't sent that person an encouraging text. I need to do that. And then you do it or you don't do it. Isn't that interesting? Well, Hezekiah, Hezekiah's life is in the scriptures and it says he did. He did stuff. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And if you're taking notes, this is my first and of two points. This is my first point of the day. Resilient faith, which is the topic of this entire series. Resilient faith, it never stays in your head. It's more than head knowledge. It's more than just a mental state. My faith is not just what I think about, what I believe in a mental state. It's an action item. And that's the first big point of today. Resilient faith is good thoughts that result in action. Good biblical thoughts, obviously, that result in action. See, if your faith begins in your mind, in your head, but it quickly moves to your hands and your feet. It's an action word. You could even say obedience. But as soon as I say obedience in the 21st century, half the people turn, on, turn to me out. Because obedience isn't a popular subject, is it? Obedience is like, I don't want to do that. I want to do my own thing. But obedience is all over the Bible. In fact, faith and obedience are two sides of the same coin. You can't have faith without obedience. And you won't be obedient to God without some faith. And we, we see examples of this all over the scriptures. You don't, have to, you don't have to turn there, but Hebrews chapter 11 is often called the hall of faith because it gives these little snippets of a bunch of Old Testament characters and their, and their life and examples. And let me just read a couple to you, just sound bites here in Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, Noah built an ark. It wasn't just something he thought about. He built the ark. By faith, Abraham obeyed God and went. He left his home country and went to another country, an obedient action. By faith, Abraham offered Isaac. That was a complete obedient action. By faith, Moses left Egypt. That was an obedient action. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea. You know, when Moses parted the Red Sea, they could have said, wow, isn't that cool? We should probably go through that. But they actually did. They did something. It was an obedient action. And it's just not in, in the Pauline letters and the book of Hebrews and all these other places. Even Jesus has an example of this out of the Gospel of Matthew, again, we're not going to turn there. This is one of my favorite stories, actually, and it's so dirt simple. You'll probably think less of me because, like, he's a simpleton because that's a really simple story. But I love this story. Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. This is what the scripture says. Some men brought a paralyzed man to Jesus. They didn't think about bringing the paralyzed man to Jesus. They actually did it. It was an obedient action. And how many times in our world today do we say, I should do this? But these guys, they actually picked up the paralyzed man and they brought him to Jesus. And what, is, what does it say about Jesus in that same passage, passage? It says, Jesus saw their faith. Jesus saw the action. He could see faith with his own two eyes. Because it's an obedient action. And I think that's just encouraging that we could do things that Jesus sees. And he sees us being obedient to him. Now, I want to get 
real down to earth and real practical here for just a second. See, obedient actions are more than just sharing your thoughts. If we think about Facebook, for example, is posting your opinion about whatever. In the age we live in, everybody has opinions about everything. But if you're just posting what you think about or what should happen, how much faith does that take? If you're blasting out emails to people about all these things that are going on and this has happened and this is wrong and this is right and this is my opinion, how much faith does that actually take? I told you I was going to challenge you today, and I'm going to challenge you with this. Resilient faith isn't about saying what we should do. It's about doing what we should do. And, and what does Hezekiah actually do? What's well, right there in the passage. Let's look at the first three things he did in verse 4. Three things he did. He removed the high places. He smashed the sacred stones, and he cut down the Asherah pole. He actually physically removed high places. And these are places in Israelite villages, often at the top of the city, the high point, they would build an altar to the Canaanite gods. Those were called the high places, and he removed those. Sacred stones were used in this idol worship. And Exodus chapter 23, verse 24, actually says, get rid of those. So he did. He smashed them. And then he cut down the Asherah poles. Asherah poles uh, honor the goddess Asherah, which is one of the Canaanite gods, and just all three of these are examples of wrongly placed worship violating the first and second command. See, these are three bad things. They started out as bad things, and Hezekiah was faithful, and he obediently acted, and he removed, and he smashed, and he cut down. And if you've been in church more than about three weeks, you know what I'm going to say next, right? You know what's coming what in our life needs to be removed, smashed, or cut down? I've got my things. You probably have some of your things. But this is the time to be challenged in that. And I want to encourage you with what's coming next because I think it will really, really help us. Because he not only did the, the removing, the smashing, and the cutting down of the bad things, but he also destroyed the Nehushtan. Well, what is this Neshustan thing anyway, right? It says in the passage that it was a bronze snake that Moses had made for up to that time the Israelites had been burning incense to it. So we need to go back in the story of the Bible to Numbers chapter 1 to find out what's going on with this bronze snake on a pole. And you could turn there if you want in your Bible. Not Numbers 21, or if not, it's going to be up on the screen. Now, to, to set the context, this story is about 700 years prior to Hezekiah. Hezekiah was around 700 B.C., and the Israelites wandering in the wilderness was about 1400 B.C. Again, I, I like using round numbers to, to keep things simple. And I, I'm going to warn you, this is a bizarre story. I love it, but it's, it's kind of bizarre. So let's read Numbers chapter 21. Started in the second half of verse 4. It says, The people grew impatient on the way because they were wandering in the wilderness. They had left Egypt and they were on their way to the promised land. But uh, it, it was a tough, tough journey. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no bread, there's no water. And we detest this miserable food. So these people are complaining off the charts. 
They have manna to eat, but they're still complaining. Verse 6, then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, we sinned, (laughs) you think? We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And we get the answer to the the prayer in verse 8. The Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and he put it up on a pole. And then when anyone was bitten by the snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. Wow, that is just a crazy story. And some of you are going, is that in the Bible? It actually is in the Bible. Numbers chapter 21. And can you imagine what Moses was thinking? Because notice, what did Moses pray for? He prayed for God to take the snakes away. But did God take the snakes away? No, he didn't. He said, make a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. And if I were Moses, I'd be saying, you want me to do what? I mean, why don't you just take the snakes away? Isn't that easier, God? No, I want you to make a a bronze snake. Really? And put it on a pole. Yeah, you know, high on a pole so people can see it. Very practical answer to the prayer. And by faith, Moses obeyed. But this is what I want you to notice. This is super important. What happens over the next 700 years, this was a good thing. This was a godly good thing. God answered the prayers of Moses and saved the people. Yet, over 700 years, they turned this object into a false god and they worshipped it and they gave it a name, Neshushtan, and they burned incense to it. See, the Bible is super clear. We're not supposed to do that. God's our only object of worship. No idols No false gods, no images. But that's what happened over the next 700 years. So this is the second major point for today I wanted you to get. The first one being our faith needs to be obedient actions. The second one is this. What good thing have we turned into a bad thing? Because the Israelites aren't the only ones that do this, right? We have to know. All of us have the capacity to take a good thing that God has given us and turn it into a bad thing. Some thoughts might be popping into your mind. Let me help you out. I'm just going to throw out seven things. Sports, sex, these are all things that are good that may become bad. Your job, social media, money, your national or cultural identity, personal rights and freedom. I'm going to return to those in just a second, but, but for, for now, just remember, all of us have the ability to do this. You see, that this bronze snake really was a good thing. It wasn't a bad thing like the high places and the sacred stones and the pole. It saved the Israelites. And Jesus himself, Jesus himself used the story out of Numbers chapter 21 when he was teaching Nicodemus. Easiest quiz you'll ever have in your life. What's the most famous verse in the Bible? John what? John 3, 16. Most famous verse in all the Bible. Well, if you just back up two verses from that to John 13 and 14, look what Jesus says to Nicodemus when he's talking to him. In John 3, verses 14 
and 15. This is what Jesus said to Nicodemus. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. And this is just classic Jesus. Because in the wilderness, God provides a good thing that saves the Israelites. Then the Israelites, over 700 years, turn it into a bad thing. And then Jesus comes along and he uses the original story and uses it as a teaching point, as a good thing, and draws this mind-blowing parallel between himself and this snake on the pole. How we have to look to Jesus to have eternal life. And we don't worship the cross that Jesus was crucified on, right? We worship the person, Jesus. We don't worship the actual physical cross that he was crucified in. And well done that we don't do that. And, and I'm actually happy that that cross doesn't exist because if it did, it'd probably be in some kind of a museum somewhere and it'd be too tempting to start worshiping that object instead of the one true God in the name and body of Jesus. So, Again, how do, how, how do we deal with this? We have to ask ourselves, is there a Nehushtan in our lives drawing our attention away from Jesus? Is there a good thing in our lives that has turned into a bad thing? Well, let's go back to these seven practical examples, and I'll, and I'll try to give you some ideas. And if the Holy Spirit's telling you, you need to deal with this, you need to deal with this, you need to deal with this, I'm going to encourage you and challenge you to do that. But sports, sports, good thing or bad thing? Well, it's a good thing because it teaches teamwork. It teaches discipline. It's physical activity. But it could easily become a bad thing when you start yelling at the refs, yelling at the coaches, when winning is more important than sportsmanship. Or nowadays, it seems like you can bet your entire life savings with just a couple of clicks of, uh, of the mouse on any game that's ever been played. What about sex? That's a wonderful gift from God inside marriage. But outside marriage, it becomes a bad thing. And obviously, all the sexual sins and prostitutions is a horrible thing. What about your job? That's a good thing. It's a blessing. But there's kind of two extremes with your job. Your job can become an idol. It could become your identity. It could become your entire focus of your life. You could actually push God to the side and elevate your job and become a workaholic. Or the other extreme is you might hate your job and you hate working and you become lazy and you complain and you're not a good employee. And if that's you, I'd recommend reading the book of Proverbs. It has a lot of encouragement of how to deal with those situations. Well, what about social media? I mean, social media gets a pretty bad rap nowadays sometimes but I got to tell you social media is a good thing in our family I love it I get so excited when I see a Facebook notification and here's the reason why I only use Facebook for one thing my daughters have both created private uh, Facebook accounts so we could view pictures of the grandkids so whenever I get a Facebook notification I know I'm going to see a cute picture or a cute video of one of my four grandkids so I think Facebook's a great thing, but I'm not on it for anything else. But, but Facebook and the other social media type things, whichever one you're on, they could easily become a bad thing, right? They could reflect the broken world. You could become bitter 
and, and angry and become too worried about what others think about you and how many likes you get and all that stuff. Ask yourself this. What's your mental state of mind after spending time on social media? Is it uplifting or does it drag you down? How's your blood pressure after you surf the Facebook post? If your blood pressure is going off, then I think you might need to tear it down. Well, the next one is money. This is probably the simplest one. Money is a really good thing when you're generous. It's a really good thing. You could bless a ton of people and organizations and communities and gospel stuff with money. Or it can be a really bad thing if you become greedy. These last two are pretty nuanced, so I'm going to ask you to listen carefully to these last two because they're a little bit more broad. Um, the first one being nationality and cultural identity. And I changed the title of that one about 20 times, but both my two daughters recommended that title for these. And thank you, Jamie, and uh, thank you, Kelsey, for the help on that. And the reason why they picked this is because they know this is kind of a loaded topic, but this is the thing. Our nationality and cultural identity is a beautiful thing. God's creative nature shows up in all of us that look different, sound different, eat different, live different, because he is the great creator. But you could see how nationality and cultural identity could become a bad thing when we aren't loving to people who aren't like us. So that needs to be cut out. And then the last one, personal rights and freedoms. That's a very good thing. I really enjoy my personal rights and freedoms. I don't want them taken away. But even our personal rights and freedoms, they can become a bad thing. I think the best example of this is taught to us from the life of Paul. In Acts chapter 22, Paul was about to be flogged. And flogging in the first century was bad. It could easily be a death sentence. But Paul said, you can't flog me. I'm a Roman citizen. And I love that. He, just pulled the, he pulled the citizen card. He played his personal rights and freedoms card. But Paul himself would go on to teach adamantly, despite your personal rights and freedoms, we need to constantly remind ourselves that our rights and freedoms are subservient to the greatest command, which is love God and love others. And Paul taught that over and over and over again. So one of the things we can do is look at the rich history now. So, you know, sometimes we think, oh, I wish I lived in the first century when people were nearer to Jesus' time. But one of the benefits we have is we have 2,000 years of history. And we can look at all these wonderful saints that have given up their rights and freedoms for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of loving others. And that's what I want my life to be like. I hope you do too. So I want to ask you, what, what's the common denominator that, that is in all seven of these examples? All seven of these examples have this one common denominator, and it's this. When our focus turns away from God and away from loving others and becomes self-centered, a good thing has become a bad thing. Now, I, I, I told you I wanted to encourage you and I'm going to encourage you the best I can with the scriptures. And this next slide that's going to come up has two, uh, two quotes from scriptures. One from Philippians, one from Luke. And I hope this encourages you and challenges you just like it does me. The first one 
is from Philippians chapter 2, and it's Paul speaking. And he's given us instructors, instructions. Remember, this, this is a guy who lived it, right? He, he's, he lived it. And this is Paul's advice and encouragement to us. He says, do nothing, nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others. I mean, this, if, if, if there was ever a verse that's easy to say, hard to do, this is it. But I think we're encouraged by it, even though we're challenged by it. And let's go to the words of Jesus. What did Jesus say in Luke chapter 9, verses 23? He says, then, it's, this is what the passage says, then he, Jesus, said to them all, this is Jesus speaking, whoever wants to be my disciple... And I hope that's you today, and I hope that's everybody sitting in their living rooms watching this online. Whoever wants to be my disciple, they must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. And you might say, uh, where's the encouragement in that? That just sounds like all challenge. Let me tell you what I think is one of the most encouraging things in that verse. It says daily. Because I don't know about you, but I fail at this regularly. And one of the beauties of the Christian life is truly, as the scriptures say, his mercies are new every morning. And when I get up today and Satan reminds me of how I failed yesterday, Jesus slams me in the face and says, today pick up your cross. Start over and follow me. Do it daily. And it takes a daily sacrifice to do that. But it's the best life we could ever live. And, and I know all these examples, whether it be sports, sex, jobs, social, all these examples, they're super convicting and probably very thought-provoking for some. And they're meant to be because the kingdom of God demands that we live like this. I'm not sure which one of these things is your personal Nehushtan that needs to be destroyed. Uh, I have mine, and you probably have some of yours, but I'm just going to remind you that we're not playing church with this passage, right? This isn't just ideas, and it just isn't some kind of a study. This is real-world stuff. This is how we're to live as disciples of Jesus, daily denying ourselves and pointing people to him. So that's the main content today. The two points, resilient face, more about thoughts. It's about be obedient action. And this example from the Nehushtan, that when good things become bad things, we need to do something about it. We need to take serious action. Well, to end today, I want to spend three, four minutes just talking to you very personally. So if you would, close up your Bibles. Uh, just kind of pack up, get ready for our worship time. But I want to tell you just what happened to me this week. Because obviously, I, you know, we, we don't write these messages the night before, right? Uh, they go to a review team, and my wife helps me with it, and my family helps me with it. And, and uh, so I had time to, to think about this and pray about this and contemplate about what does this message mean for me? And I spend a lot of time, Vicky and I do, with our four grandchildren because they're just awesome and we love them. And their age is one, two, three, and four, right? So that, that's really easy to remember right now. Um, but if you've ever been around that age of kids, you know what life is like. You're constantly answering the question, 
Why? Right? Why this? Why this? They call me Papa, and they're like, why Papa? Why does this Papa? Why does that Papa? And I, I asked myself this week after I heard these questions, when it comes to this type of resilient faith, taking obedient actions and turning good things in the back, I asked myself, why? Why do I sometimes leave thoughts in my head and not take action? Why do I sometimes turn a good gift from God into a bad thing? Why do I do that? And then we were back on the playground with the kids, and, uh, you know, they're being kids. And I noticed a couple things about our grandkids that I was reminded of from years ago when our kids were kids. One thing is they don't have any fear, right? It scares the death out of me. They're just, they're fearless. My oldest is Patrick, four, and he's learning how to do the monkey bars, and he's struggling with the timing going across it and I'm kind of watching him and he says Papa watch this and he kicks up and he goes through the monkey bars and now he's walking up and down on the top of them and I'm just fearful going ah no fear or Amelia the one-year-old she's taken up to finding the steepest slide and going down it face first and she loves it she's just screaming in joy but why can they do this because they've learned that when they hurt themselves they could always run with 100% confidence to mom and dad. Mom and dad have always and will always love them and take care of them. And I was convicted this week that I don't have that kind of relationship with God. And that's what I need. I don't have 100% confidence all the time that God truly loves me. I know intellectually that he does. I know when I read my Bible that he does. But when I don't let my good godly thoughts become actions, I'm learning that it's because I don't fully, fully digest God's love for me. Or when I let a good thing become a bad thing, it's because I don't fully understand that there's nothing going to happen that separates me from the love of God. So that, that's what happened to me. That, that was what I got out of this in addition to some things I got to deal with in my own life. So what we're going to do now to end, I'm going to ask the worship band to come forward. I'm going to read you one last pair of verses. It's Romans 8, 38, and 39. And, and this is the way we're going to do this. I'm going to read them to you once, those two verses, just so you know what's in them because unless you've got the whole Bible memorized, you probably think, Romans 8, 38, 39, what's in that? Um, but then the second time, I would like you to read them with me in an attitude of prayer and asking God the Father to grow our faith by growing our confidence in his love for us. Because I'm absolutely, totally convinced that the more we live in his love and know, like the grandkids, we could always run to God. No fears needed. We always have the loving Father to grab us and love us and fix us. So let me read this verse. Uh, Romans 8, 38 and 39. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So now that you know what's in those verses and you know what's coming, that's quite the list, isn't it? 
I mean, it's, it's an amazing list. This is an amazing promise to us out of the scriptures. And if we live in this this week, the challenge of being faithful won't be so hard because we have this encouraging word from the scriptures that our heavenly father will love us no matter what through Christ Jesus. So let me read this again. And if it helps to close your eyes, kneel, bow your heads, go out in the foyer, stand up, raise your arms, whatever helps you just internalize this. Let's do this. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus.